I'm Reverend Beth Hayward, and this is Souls and Souls, a podcast for the spiritual but not religious and the religiously spiritual. And I believe check-ins, a daily check-in, a weekly check-in, a monthly check-in, and you know, what's making me happy and what could I do to be a little happier? Uh, where am I living my values and how could I live them a little more deeply uh, in the next week, the next day? And these small changes can make huge differences in our lives just by checking in. Uh, and you know, there's an old saying in the desert uh, monastic tradition, sit in your cell and your cell will teach you everything. I'm in conversation today with the Reverend Dr. John Izzo, best-selling author of such books as Stepping Up and The Purpose Revolution. He has spoken to over a million people, worked with executives and corporate leaders for over 30 years across 500 companies, helping them connect to the legacy they want to leave. John is the co-founder of the Men's Initiative housed at the University of British Columbia. He loves tennis and skiing and simply being in the outdoors, but mostly he loves spending time with the people who matter most. Welcome, John. Good to have you with me today. I'm going to start with a question I like to ask a lot of people around, if I was to say to you, are you spiritual or religious? Are you one more than the other? Do either of those words resonate for you at this moment in your life? That's a great, that's a great question, you know, and uh, I think we live in a time where, where many of us, you know, uh, wonder that question. I always think of Ralph Waldo Emerson, the American uh, philosopher who is really the the, the, the first public philosopher in America said, uh, uh, every person is a congregation of one. <laughs> and I think yeah. that, uh, so I don't think I can even categorize myself because I do believe each one of us is on a very unique spiritual journey. And I bet even within a church or a synagogue or a mosque, if you were to get into the hearts of each individual, they would be some combination of uh, not a particular creed, but their own creed that they had somehow come to. So that's my best answer to the question. I, I do believe ultimately I'm a congregation of one, which is true of most of us. <laughs> love that. Well, tell me about um, the, the people that loved you into being. I mean, how, you know, so here you are, your congregation of one at this stage, but let's go way back um, so that I might get a glimpse of how, uh, how you came here. And then we'll pick up on the middle parts of the life. But uh, yeah, where'd you come from? What were the people in your life? Who were they who shaped who you are? now yeah well you know um we're all again uh, kind of a, a complex mix a compound of all these things that have influenced us as well as our own nature you know anyone who has kids i know you have two yourself know that uh, they pop out of the womb with a different energy and of course uh, women say john they don't pop out you have to, <laughs> have to really worry i've been there so I, I haven't done it but i've been there when it happens so you know uh, uh so I grew up in New York City. I was the son of an Italian-American father and a Canadian immigrant mother who had, whose family had been in Nova Scotia since 1746. And during the Great Depression, my grandparents, mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather was a shipbuilder, left uh, the Halifax area to come to New York for work. Uh, and uh, so my mother wound up growing, in, growing up in New York. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a very religious family, back to your previous <laughs> question. Um, but not so, they really weren't big churchgoers, but they were very, 
faith-based. Uh, one of my most uh, two vivid images of my childhood um, are uh, a picture of Jesus. It was a very Aryan Jesus, I have to admit. Uh, but there's this beautiful picture of Jesus, that painting of Jesus that was on the wall all during my childhood. And it was a very kind, a very warm image of Jesus, right? And I also remember uh, that my grand maternal grandfather would say, get on his knees and pray every night uh, before uh, he went to bed. And I, they had me do the same when I was a young child. So, you know, I grew up in a pretty warm uh, atmosphere as a child. The, the only complication in that is my mother and father were split up when I was six months old and my father moved two hours away. Mm. And I never met him and he died when I was eight years old. So oh, wow. I have uh, warm memories of my childhood uh, on my mother's side of my family and also a kind of sense of separation from the experience of having a father and my uh, father's family. And that, of course, had a big impact on, I think, many things in my life. Oh, I would think that that early experience of loss uh, on so many levels would would uh, be a thread throughout your life. Absolutely. Um, which, you know, gets me to, by all conventional standards, you've had a successful life. You've uh, had a successful career. Um, but I'm, I'm interested in um, you talk so much about purpose, right? I mean, you've written books about having a purpose that uh, you seem very driven to uh, not to success, but to purpose. Uh, and I, I would just love to hear about what that what that is for you, what that means. Well, well, that's a big question. So yeah. I'll come at it personally first and then go maybe to the macro. So for myself, I don't really know why ever since I was a very young child, uh, I, I don't ever remember being motivated by success or money. Uh, I do remember really being motivated by making a difference. And I think that was kind of driven into me as a young child, but I think a part of it was who I was. I was a very sensitive young child. I remember uh, one of my most vivid childhood memories, I grew up in a neighborhood full of boys and, uh, and boys can be kind of you know, strange sometimes. And I remember some of the boys got a kick out of pouring hot water down ant holes when I was a young child. And I remember even as a young child, that really bothered me. It broke my heart that why would you be this way to another creature, right? So I think that gives you a hint that from the very beginning, I had this big heart. And, and also uh, when other people suffered, it really, it really um, you know, sunk in for me. I took it in. And so uh, I think I've always had a sense of purpose in my own life to make the world better uh, in some way. And uh, I, I just wanted other people to have that same sense of purpose. And the other thing is I always was bothered by some things about the world, the lack of kindness, lack of compassion, lack of care for nature. And maybe because of my own experience with my father subconsciously, I think um, the choice that he made has driven me in many ways to be very intentional about my own life, but also very kind of focused on helping other people not live a life by accident. And many people do live kind of an accidental life, right? We just kind of go from one thing to the next. And so a lot of my work, whether it's in business or in my work with individuals has been just helping people live a more intentional life. And maybe I believe in the goodness of people that 
when we think about what we're doing, we usually make good choices. And most of our, our bad choices come because we didn't really think about it. We just kind of got caught up in whatever was happening around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, live with intention. Uh, it sounds so simple when you say it, right? But I. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's a daily. A friend of mine used to say, "The problem with life is it's so daily, right?" And mm-hmm. and whether it's you know our spiritual life, our professional life, our relational life, every day we just get up and we say, uh, "Can I make a different play than I made yesterday and be a little better uh, than I was yesterday?" And that's what me for me intentionality is about having a destination and just every day asking, how can I make a little better play? Yeah, well, I was listening to a, some podcasts lately where someone actually asked that question every night. Um, was I better today than yesterday? Mm-hmm. Um, and he says on the days when he when the answer is no, uh, he rarely has one of those days twice in a row, right? It's like, if you take the time to take stock, um, you really will uh, show up with better intention the next day. Yeah, you know, to pick up on that for a moment, Beth, yeah. I think that one of the things I teach people in my work is the power of, of disciplines, things that you do, whether you're in the mood or not. And, and I believe check-ins, a daily check-in, a weekly check-in, a monthly check-in, and, you know, what's making me happy and what could I do to be a little happier? Uh, where am I living my values and how could I live them a little more deeply uh, in the next week, the next day? And these small changes can make huge differences in our lives just by checking in. Uh, and, you know, there's an old saying in the desert uh, monastic tradition, sit in your cell and your cell will teach you everything. Mm. And what I love about that, I, I have to always remind modern people, not sit on your cell phone, <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> sit in your cell, sit in a place of quiet. And most everything will become clear. And the Buddhists, of course, talk about allowing the, the dirt to settle in the lake so you can see your divinity and see what's true. You know? mm. Well, I, I like that idea of the daily, weekly, monthly check-in. And I, yeah, I bet a lot of people are not doing it. It's, it what I would call that is a spiritual practice. Right? Like it it yeah. is uh, that intention to just make the time. Um, yeah. And, you know, we probably made too much of belief in the Christian tradition than we have of practices, right? So that's one reason I love the monastic tradition in Catholicism, because it's very similar to Buddhism in that, you know, Buddhism focuses less on belief and more on practice. And if you look at the monastic tradition, especially the the contemplative tradition, it focuses a lot on practices. So we really become our habits, our practices more than our beliefs, our beliefs you know, are important, but it's our practices that ultimately shape our experience of life and spirituality. Mm, absolutely. Well, I know you engaged in a, you know, a nine-month sabbatical practice a few years back. Uh, I think it was your second time walking the Camino. Um, tell me, if you can, what you, well, you know, what you bumped up against uh, in yourself as you tracked uh, that path. Mm. So I've done the Camino twice now, and both were profound, but the first time was probably more important for me because Mm -hmm. I did that, I guess, in 2016 now, so five years ago. And I'd really come to a point in my life where I felt like I was really busy and I had done really good work and I was, you know, uh, you know, 55 years old, 56 years old, something like that at the time. And I was thinking, you know, I don't know how many big pushes I have left, right? 
but it didn't, it felt like I was, I wasn't burned out, but I wasn't really sensing that same sense of energy in my work. Mm. And, and I thought, I a friend of mine said, well, maybe you need to impose a sabbatical on yourself. And I kind of entertained it for a few months. And then one day I just did it. I just said, I'm not going to take any paid work for the next 10 months. And I just did it. And 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 people like speakers, bureaus, and folks who booked me would yep. send me letters saying, uh, that's so courageous of you. And you never feel you're being courageous till people tell you you're being courageous. So when someone does something courageous, don't tell them they're being courageous. It really <laughs> makes, it makes you very frightened. <laughs> and so I decided to begin that 10 months, you know, with this walk on the Camino de Santiago. And I had heard about, of course, that walk for years. And I think one of the things about taking a sabbatical, a path, is that it's best not to think you know what it's about. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I tried not to say, to figure out what this was about, but to see what would show up. And right. two, the two big things that showed up for me the first thing um, was um, there's a beautiful place on the Camino called the Cruz de Fer, which is the highest point on the on the French route of the Camino after the Pyrenees, and uh, it has a, a, an iron cross there, a very high iron cross. And the tradition is you bring a rock from home mm. that you leave there, and mm. it's a place where you make commitments or you leave something behind. And I picked up this rock, you know, brought this rock with me. And it wasn't until I got there that I realized what I wanted to leave behind, which in my case was my need to be great. Oh, wow. And I realized mm. that even though much of my life had been about purpose, it was really important to me to feel important and to have that success and to have that external kudos and to feel like I was changing the world. And when you come to that place in the Camino, you have to realize people have been leaving rocks there for a thousand years. Most of the people who left there are long dead, long gone, right? Uh, people will put like notes on their rock, like so they'll be remembered and their, the notes have long ago blown away and faded. You can't read them anymore, right? They painted their rock. And when you come to that place in the Camino, there's one of two feelings you can have. One is, wow, I'm so insignificant, you know, it's just one more rock, who cares, right? Or you can say, my God, I'm a part of a conversation that began long before I arrived and a conversation that's going to go on long after I'm gone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that if I could melt into that oneness and realize it wasn't up to me Mm -hmm. and whatever I did was enough and it was just about being my truest self and contributing to my part of this human path. And it was a very freeing moment for me. And I can say of all the things on the Camino, I've spent almost no time thinking about what others think about me or my ranking in the leadership you know, rankings. Any of those things literally disappeared after that moment in the Camino. And uh, it was a beautiful moment. And I thought of Jesus saying about uh, he who seeks to find, you know, they who seek to find themselves will lose themselves. Right. But those who lose themselves will find themselves. And I kind of thought that's what I think he was talking about in that moment. I finally got it. If you could just lose yourself into the oneness and not have to stand out, but just be yourself. That that is an incredibly freeing moment. So many other beautiful things happened yeah. on the Camino, but that was the that was the moment for me of the sabbatical that lasted another, you know, months and months after that. 
See, I was going to ask you if you if you really did leave the greatness behind, and you've already answered it. I like, I'm so jealous. What like you, you learned something, and, and it stuck. <laughs> like that's yeah. like a no, mountaintop I don't mean like moment. I don't, once in a while, it like shows up, right? Because everything in life, happiness, you know, spirituality, it's like a portal, you know. And I always say the Dalai Lama is sometimes on the other side of the Zen Buddhist portal, but yeah. he probably spends most of his time on the other side of that portal. So I'd be lying mm -hmm. if I said, oh, I never even have those thoughts anymore. But it used to have a hold of me and it has no hold on me anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's allowed me just to do work I'm interested in and to just be more free uh, in, in a beautiful way. And wow. uh, so that was the greatest gift of the Camino, uh, of all the gifts it gave me. And it gave me a lot of gifts. Yeah. And that would have been enough, actually. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was enough. Yeah. In fact, I could have ended the sabbatical then. I realized <laughs> the whole rest of the sabbatical was just like, uh, in a way, killing time mm -hmm. uh, to to remember what I'd learned in that in that that 30 day walk. Right. Yeah. Which may have been what it took to make it really sink yes, in. Yes. <laughs> I think if I had just gone back, it would have just like all come back. It's, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I like to talk about failure and and I'm interested, you know, you've written a few books, right? So I can find quotes of yours out there. <laughs> and I, I'm intrigued by the idea that you suggest that people aren't so much afraid of failure, but of not risking failure. Uh, tell me more about that. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I wrote about that in my book, The Five Secrets You Must Discover Before You Die. And, you know, mm -hmm. that was actually a real passion project for me where I had another transition moment in my life where I had been in, in Africa. And uh, it's a long story, but the elders were talking about, you know, how, you know, uh, in their society after you're 50 years old, which is old in that society because the lifespan is less, uh, that you automatically become an elder. And now people look up to you and they listen to you and they come to you for wisdom. And they say, well, some people are old before their time, et cetera. And they said, how about in your society? Like, do you like revere? I said, well, no, we kind of, we retire them early. We send them to the nursing home and live by themselves. We don't really revere the elderly in that way. And I came back and had this idea of what would happen if I interviewed people towards the end of their life who were identified by others as the wisest older person they knew. So we asked thousands of people to nominate the wisest older person they knew. And I wound up interviewing these 250 people with 18,000 years of life experience with only one thing in common. <laughs> Someone said, this is the wisest older person that I know. And it was like sitting at the feet of a wise grandmother and grandfather every mm -hmm. week for like a year of my life. But one of the things I noticed in those interviews is again and again, people said to me that they didn't regret their failures. They didn't regret the book they wrote that that didn't get published or didn't sell. They didn't regret going for love and failing. They didn't regret trying out for the play and not getting it. But many of them said they wish they had risked more. They wish they had realized how little there was to lose to reach for what you want uh, in your life and for your dreams. And so I really came to realize that that the greatest regret at the end, as one of them said to me, the greatest regret at the end of the life is just to be thinking what might have been. Yeah. And at least if you have been in the fully in and tried what you wanted to do, maybe your heart was broken, maybe you failed in the traditional sense, but you won't regret that. 
but you sure will regret having held back, whether it's the matters of the heart or matters of the business or matters of your dreams. And it really influenced me too about, you know, reimagining our relationship with, with this word we call failure. They also said, look, every time you fall down, you're going to learn something. And that's what life's about. It's a learning experience. <laughs> yeah, it's where the wisdom comes from, really. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that's actually, there's a, there, there's a, the other thing I realized when I did those interviews and the book has been, you know, a, a great, it sold a lot of copies in all these languages, but for me, the most rewarding thing is even, you know, almost 20 years after I wrote it, you know, about every week or two, I get an email from someone in the world, a teenager, someone who's dying, an older person saying this book made a difference for me. And I, mm -hmm. I was thinking of a Confucius saying uh, that I, I have in the preface to the book, which is there are three ways to achieve uh, wisdom. The first is by, um, by, uh, by reflection, which he said is the noblest way. You could meditate and read and pray and eventually you'll get there. He said uh, the second way is through experience, which he said is the hardest path. Mm -hmm. And we often say the best path is through experience. He said the easiest path to wisdom, the third way is imitation. Oh. And I didn't mean just imitating what others do, but learn from those who've already taken the journey. <laughs> and that's why I found this such an incredible experience. Talk to people who've already been there. You don't have to imitate them, but you can you can learn from the path they took. And that's what mm -hmm. I loved most about that year of interviewing those people. Well, and isn't, I mean, it's so much a reflection too of the individual nature of our society, right? And uh, I, I, we completely undervalue uh, how much we could learn from one another. Right? <laughs> gotta... oh, we're like, I got to, I got to go my own way. The <laughs> yeah. school of hard knocks, and there is something to be said for that. But the truth is, you know, we, as a friend of mine says, we arrive. There's no owner's manual. I mean, the spiritual traditions are a pretty darn good one, but you know, there's no, they don't hand you an owner's manual and you just start going. Maybe you have parents who were wise. Maybe you have parents who weren't very wise at all, and mm -hmm. off you go. But by finding people who have found happiness and found meaning and have been challenged, all those people in the book, even though people said, why is this older person I know? They had all the same, you know, heartbreaks and, 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 and disappointments that all of us have had, but they found a way to transform them. And yeah. that's ultimately what we can learn most from people, I think, is oh, the yeah. inner journey, really, more than the outer journey. Yeah, and uh, it's the great equalizer. We are all in these human bodies, right? Uh, you can't escape the the heartbreaks. It's what what stories you tell out of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about a, a more recent initiative of yours because I know it's a real passion, the men's initiative that you started with some colleagues. Um, why men, right? You know, people would say, "Oh, men," you know, they've had their. <laughs> And third time their, in the limelight. Their day. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's send them out to pasture, uh, which is one path. Uh, you know, um, I never imagined I would co-found a center dedicated to enhancing the well-being of men for the benefit of communities. Uh, uh, I've worked with men and women my whole life. I was raised by a single mom. Mm. You know, uh, I kind of, you know, surrounded myself with women most of my life and, and in business, of course, work with both genders. And when a friend of mine, David Cool, who's a professor at UBC, had gone on sabbatical and came back with this idea to start this center dedicated to men's well-being, um, 
I, I remembered an experience I had had in, uh, well, first of all, what does the center do? The center is, de is, is the only university-based organization like it in the world because we have no academic programs. We teach no courses. All our work is out in the world, dedicated to doing research about what's happening with men and masculinity, what's happening in relationships between the genders, uh, to create programs that help men be better for themselves and better to others. Uh, in several sectors like sport, uh, protective services, business, et cetera. And then finally, to really um, uh, try to have a conversation about a more aspirational masculinity. But the interesting thing is the reason that it stuck with me was an experience I had in 1994 when I was a delegate to the UN Conference on Population and Development in Cairo. And the goal of the conference was how do we create a more sustainable future and, and, and limit population growth because that'd be good for humanity. At that conference, there in one meta theme emerged. We must do something for young girls and for women all over the world, especially in the developing world. If we can create opportunities for women and young women, choices around work and education and more freedom, they will in fact improve their societies and they'll have fewer babies, to be honest, and mm -hmm. which is true as they get educated, have more opportunities. And that's the secret. And I, I fully bought into that. I realize now, 26 years later, there was not one conversation at that conference about boys or men. Not one conversation that maybe if we didn't do anything for boys and men, we, we might be in trouble. Mm. And, and I realize now, 25 years later, while we have nowhere near there yet for women, we've made tremendous progress, but we've done almost nothing to intentionally bring men along spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. Uh, there are very few curriculums for young boys while there have been lots for young girls. And it hasn't changed that much. And now I think there's a beginning of a sense that it's like an airplane with two wings. Uh, we've spent 25 years improving the, the female part of the wing and we still need to work on it. And meanwhile, men have fallen behind. They're more likely to commit suicide, more likely to be addicted, more likely to be homeless, more likely to desert their families, more likely to do violence. Uh, you know, we just go down the, the, you know, more likely to be the victims of violence, you know, more likely to like do sexual assault. So both men are suffering and men are contributing to suffering. And it just felt like it was time to be intentional about that and that it was a public health issue. Like I think about my own father, and that's a part of the driver for me. Fatherhood is a public health issue. We know when fathers are engaged with their children and are positive role models, all kinds of good things happen for boys and girls. Mm -hmm. And yet a lot of fathers are absent. A lot of fathers desert their families. A lot of fathers are there but are not engaged or not good role models. So even fatherhood alone, which is one of our focuses, I, I think it's a public health issue for all of us. And the thing that's encouraged me the most is mothers of sons have been our biggest supporters. <laughs> they say, you need to do this because I see that my young men in my life, even in our society, are a bit lost. And, mm. and, and I, I want you to do this work. Wow, what a beautiful offering. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's it's the long haul work too, right? Like you can see some rewards, but that you're... <laughs> Yeah, it'll be 25 years before anyone can look back and say, oh, we've made a substantial difference here. That's yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, isn't that like, I think um, that's true with so many issues. When people get discouraged about these issues, all these issues, war and peace, inclusion, 
you know, uh, racism, uh, environment, right? I always think of, I was on the program a few years ago with Romy, Romeo Dallaire, the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Rwanda, you know, Canadian general in the, you know, from the, the movie, uh, you know, Hotel Rwanda. And he said something that really struck me. He said, how long will it be before humans are not at war with each other? He said, it might take 250 years. <laughs> he said, but we have to think that way. Yeah. Not meaning that it will take 250 years, but we have to we have to know that it may be that long before we're really where we want to be. Uh, but that's it's going to cross generations. You're not going to finish the work. Uh, you're going to put a rock on the pile in my Camino experience. <laughs> and then others will come along and add to that rock. And maybe eventually you get a beautiful mountain. Yeah, what a gorgeous image. It's like it's that concept of being good ancestors, being uh, doing your part today with that long range view. Yeah. So I, I would be remiss before, you know, before we finish, if I didn't ask you about your vocation and you've had these, you know, 30 odd years in the training uh, leaders in the business world and speaking all over. Not a lot of people know that you started as a pastor of some little Presbyterian churches. I, I'm interested in how that vocational switch happens in someone and really if there's something in your calling that's actually this exact same thread for all you've done in your life. Yeah, so it is true. I, I began my career as ordained uh, in uh, 1980 uh, in the Presbytery of New York City. For uh, the next eight years, I served churches in Ohio and then in, in Southern California. I loved my time as a pastor because uh, it, what I loved the most, honestly, was as a very young person, you can appreciate this, Beth, uh, being with people in these profound moments of their lives. There's a saying in Ecclesiastes, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, it is better to go to a funeral than a party. <laughs> and they didn't say it's more fun. They didn't say you want to go every day. They said it's better. You will learn more. And having sat with people who were dying and older people who were at the end of their lives and, and starting to fail. And yeah, I remember uh, a, a young woman in our church whose uh, son, four-year-old son, had drowned in front of her at a lake and she couldn't save him. Right. Those experiences shaped me profoundly. But when, you know, there are only three careers I ever considered when I was a young person. One was the ministry because I wanted to make a difference. And I was a spiritual, you know, religious person, uh, congregation of one even then. Uh, and uh, and uh, I considered law because I wanted to go into politics because at the time, 1960s, early 70s in the U.S., politics was still a noble profession. It still is, yeah. but it was like seen that way, right? Yeah. And then uh, the third choice was to be a journalist. I always liked to write it. I wanted to tell the stories of the good things and the bad things that were happening in the world to change the narrative, right? And uh, so long story short, I finally got ordained as a, as a Presbyterian minister, spent eight years. Uh, when I was in Youngstown, Ohio, uh, I started working on a PhD in organizational communication, thinking actually I might go teach homiletics in the seminary. That's why I was doing communication. But at the same time, I had noticed in my congregation in Youngstown, Ohio, where a lot of the steel mills were closing down. I noticed what that was doing to that community. It was destroying the community. But I also noticed that the way many of my congregants were treated at work by leaders, literally 
destroyed their emotional and psychological and spiritual health. Mm. And then while I was studying this communication stuff, I got fascinated with the impact work had on people's lives, how we spent all this time there. And I, I couldn't repair them on Sunday to the damage that had been done from Monday to Friday. Yeah. And a long story short, I, you know, I, I, I started in organization development. But what's really beautiful is for many years, people would say to me, why did you leave the ministry? And I had like a whole like reason around it. And well, you know, I was good at the preaching, but not at the visiting and et cetera. It was always which was true. Right. Um, and then one day I realized I hadn't left. Mm. That my calling always was to integrate these three careers. See, the beautiful thing is I wound up marrying my three careers. I've written books that almost all are journalistic enterprises. Yeah. Things like The Five Secrets, like uh, Awakening Corporate Soul, where I interviewed people about their best experiences at work and then told those stories, right, about issues that I care about. Uh, I'm not involved in politics, but in my speaking and consulting, I work on environment and social mm -hmm. justice and trying to get companies to do the very kinds of things I would wanted to have done in politics. And I preach all over the world, including at your church, you know, <laughs> four or five times a year. Mm -hmm. But I get to preach all over the world. And one of the most beautiful things that happens to me sometimes in my corporate talks is a person of faith, often a Christian, will come up to me. And it may not have been mentioned at all, usually in my introduction. Mm. And they will say, uh, you're a believer, aren't you? Mm. And I said, yes, I am. Why? And they just said, I could tell. And I think of what St. Francis said, which is, uh, uh, preach always, speak when necessary. And uh, I guess the beautiful thing is I got to marry these three careers. And I think it turned out my vocation. I think one of the disservices we do to people in ministry, just as an aside, and it's changed now. But when I went to seminary, you, it, those who didn't go into the pastoral ministry were seen as lesser citizens. Like that wasn't a real calling. Right. And even today, I'm on the inactive roles of the presbytery because I'm not considered to be in a real calling, right? And yeah. I think that's not kind of sad in a way, right? Because I'd like to think I've had a big impact in, mm -hmm. in, in my ministry mm -hmm. by doing what I've wound up doing. Not necessarily bigger or smaller, but certainly as meaningful as it would have been if I had stayed. Wow. All right. One last question before we sign off. Um, you've just alluded to the work you have done for a long, long time around you know, climate change before it was called climate change and social justice. Um, I, as the mother of teens, I, um, we talk a lot in my house about hope and, and how to have hope in the world today. Um, so, you know, you're over 50, so you must be wise. Um, <laughs> give us something. What, what, what gives you hope? How, or perhaps the other side of that is, you know, how do you tap into a sense of hope in the yeah, world today? You know, um, I guess three things come to mind. My wife always says I say three things before I know if there's three things. I think this is one of those times, but I think there are three things. The first thing is that I think of Carl Sagan, the uh, astronomer who was not a believer in the, re the religion, but was uh, uh, as uh, you know uh, was uh, uh, I think uh, desired for that hope and. He was a pub, really the only public astronomer we probably had like in, in the world. It's a popularly public you know, guy. And he said something before he died of brain cancer. He said, they asked him, uh, was he hopeful about the human experiment? Hmm. And he said, if you could project me out 50 years, this is in probably around late 1990s, and we had neither destroyed the planet beyond repair 
or blown ourselves to pieces. I'm very optimistic about the future of human uh, experiment because all the trends he said are in the right direction. Yeah. We just have to accelerate them. You know, a guy a few years ago from Harvard wrote a, a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. It's a beautiful book if you want to have hope, because he basically says we talk about how bad things are. But actually, if you look at the arc of history, the amount of people who are enslaved versus free, the amount of people who can vote versus can't vote, the amount of people who are murdered or killed, we actually like are better on almost every metric. Now, the environment is one we're not so, but even there, we're starting to turn the corner, right? So I think if you look at the arc of history to me mm -hmm. is one of the reasons I have hope. The second reason is we have to have hope. You know, a few years ago, a woman who was the chief of staff who I knew for the governor of Ohio during the acid rain days said, we have companies come into our office every day and tell us it's too late for the Great Lakes. Mm. Let, why bother about acid rain? It's too late. And I love what she said. She said, we cannot believe that for one moment or let that thought enter into our hearts because the moment we do, we'll stop doing everything we can to make sure it's not too late. So hope is also a very practical choice because hope is what keeps us getting up every morning and doing it. So I take the arc of history as hope. I take this second thing as hope. And the third thing I take as hope is I do believe in the goodness of people. This is back to my thing about intentionality. Mm. You know, Peter Senge, who's written a lot, and I've met Peter and worked with him a few times. Peter says a system problem is one that the outcome is not what any of the individuals would have chosen. And I believe the vast majority of individuals in the world want peace. They want harmony with themselves and other people. They don't want war. They don't want people to be disadvantaged and to be hungry and not do well. They don't want racism. They want uh, an environment that is friendly and, and sustainable. And I believe we have a system problem, not a human problem. The vast majority of individuals, I take hope in that because I don't think we've created what we want. It's just an artifact of a system that needs fixing. And I think we can fix the system. So there's my three reasons. <laughs> there and you if go. you're a believer, you have to believe that, 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 that there is an arc to this. Uh, and, uh, and I certainly believe that. Thank you, John, for your insights, uh, your wisdom, and showing up with your heart today. I really appreciate being in conversation with you. Well, thank you, Beth, for your good work and a really beautiful conversation. And so I wish all those who listen uh, a, a journey to purpose in their lives and a journey to happiness. You've been listening to Souls in Souls, a podcast for the spiritual but not religious and the religiously spiritual. I'm Reverend Beth Hayward, and I appreciate you listening. Consider subscribing and rating our podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, please consider telling a friend. To connect with us, visit us at canadianmemorial.org. Until next time. <laughs>